today we are beginning a brand new series that will continue until the end of the year, and we're calling it What Matters Most. Now, on Monday, Zach and I were eating lunch at a great American institution, Chipotle, right? Chipotle, and, and a lot of people like Chipotle. And Zach had gotten a burrito, and I had gotten a couple of tacos, and it was a beautiful day, so we sat outside, and we had just sat down, and I began to dunk one of my chips in the cheese dip there, and I get a phone call from my dad. And on the other end of the line, he sounds frantic, and what he tells me is, Josh, this is moving day for your mom and I, and your mom has taken a pretty significant fall. She's stepped on a, on a step ladder and she's fallen back and hitting her head uh, in a really bad way. And I'm now in the ambulance with her. I need you to come and make sure that you can help this move to continue to happen. Now, in that time, Zach and I didn't say, hey, listen, if you can just wait until we finish our Chipotle, then we'll come, right? We didn't say, hey, listen, you know, we're going to take our time, but we'll make it when we can. We instantly got up, we took off, and we wanted to help in any way we possibly could because at that moment, nothing else matters. That took supremacy over everything else in our lives. And my fear is in the next six weeks of this year, it is the most wonderful time of the year to forget what matters most. It really is. Because Christmas and the holiday season has been so incredibly commercialized that we're thinking about everything except what matters most. We're thinking about all of our plans, especially for this week. Where are we going to travel to? How are we going to get there? How are we going to get back? What do we need to pack? What are we going to cook? You know, how are we going to do all of that? Do we have enough space for everybody? Are we making sure health-wise that we're safe in everything that we're doing? Then for Christmas, have we gotten all of our Christmas lists made? Are we making sure that we're ordering things in plenty of time because we don't know shipping-wise how things are going to end up, right? Did we get everything in the mail? I don't see anything on my front doorstep. It was supposed to be here today. It wasn't here today. What's going on? I got to call this shipping company. I got to do this, do that, do something else. We got to think about the tree. We got to think, you, you got to have a tree, right? I mean, if you don't already have it up, you know, Friday's the day for you, you know? So you got to think about, okay, I got to have the tree. My wife, she ordered a tree the other day. She said, hey, we got to get a new tree. It's the year for a new tree. I said, that's great. So she did some research online. She got the tree. She set up the tree. And I said, I hate the tree. It's a terrible tree. It looks incredibly cheap. We do not need this tree. And so she was trying to convince herself that this tree was a good tree. But I told her, that tree is not a good tree. We need to get rid of that tree as soon as possible and get us a real tree. We're going to have a real Christmas tree. So the beautiful thing is, Facebook Marketplace, she ended up selling that tree for more than we bought it for, and then we went out and got a great tree, okay? But you got to think about all those things, right? Christmas decor outside. You don't want to look like the Grinch. You want to make sure that people know that you like the Christmas season. I mean, especially if you put up Halloween decorations, you better put up Christmas decorations. I mean, come on, you know, I mean, that's an important thing. And some of you are hearing about all this and you're getting stressed just sitting here watching online. 
And the truth is, none of that is what matters most. None of that. None of that is what matters most. And so I want to make sure in these next six weeks of the year that we refocus our attention and recalibrate our minds so that we make sure that number one is number one. And we make sure that we are making the most important things the most important things. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul begins to speak to this church that, by the way, is an imperfect church. It has plenty of problems, and he calls them out on the spot for it. And I believe that they, even though they aren't celebrating the Christmas or the Thanksgiving season, they have some of the same problems that we face today in our lives here. And I want you to see three things today that I think are very significant as we dig into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin reading there in verse 17. But first, I want you to see that the church was distracted by their differences. The church was distracted by their differences. Look at verse 17. So Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. <laughs> That's not a good start, right? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there are factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay, so one of the things that Paul mentions here is that it is normal and it is natural for factions to form. Groups naturally arise and form over time out of a larger congregation of people. However, these factions had become a sinful plague in the church at Corinth, where people were treating one another differently, where there was division, where there were some people that thought they were better than others. They thought they were above someone else. And so he comes into, he sees this situation, and he says, hold on, there's a problem, there's divisions among you, and when you come together, it's not for the better, but it's actually for the worse. And in studying for this, one of the things that I found was that division is one of the most dangerous things to a church. In fact, John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, it's going to be on the screen, that one of the most fearful things in the church is division. Because it is one of the first and surest signs of spiritual sickness. One of these first symptoms of worldliness and backsliding, often before it shows up in compromised doctrine or lifestyle, is dissension within a congregation. Now, let me give you a real example of how this can happen in the church today. Far too many people, in general, but especially in the church, go online to share their latest and greatest opinion whenever they feel like sharing it. Okay? And so when you get inside of a church, you begin to know one another, you see one another on Sundays and throughout the week, maybe at a community group or something like that. But then you become friends with them online, right? You know, in this digital world. And so their posts pop up in the feed, and you're scrolling through it, 
and you're like, I don't think I wanted to know this person that well. You know, I don't think I wanted to know their deepest, darkest thoughts. Because sometimes, I, you know, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. And I'm not, I'm not talking about anybody in this church, okay? I'm talking about somebody from the past, just to be clear, okay? I'm not preaching about any one person or looking at anybody. I'll look at the camera so nobody thinks I'm talking about them. But I'm scrolling through, and I'm like, oh, that's your opinion about that thing. I, how in the world did you get that? How do you believe as a Christian you can take that? I do not agree with you. I do not agree with any word that you just wrote. But I love you. I've spent time with you. I know you're not a terrible, awful person. I know you love other people. I know you take care of your family. But that position right there, no, cannot co-sign with that, will not be a part of anything that you're saying in that post. And I don't know if it's just me, but here's what begins to happen. In my sinful heart, because of that position, there is a wedge that's driven between us. And so, instead of saying to that person, hey, let's partner together for what matters most for the gospel purposes, I'm like, I'm not going to call that person. I'm going to avoid them at Kroger. I don't want to have anything to do with them because I don't agree with them on that one position that they may have taken. You see how easy it is for Satan to get a foothold and for us to be distracted by our differences. It's not new. It's not a 2020 or a 2021 problem. So we shouldn't think, oh man, we're dealing with something new. It may be in a different form, but certainly they were dealing with the same type of issue today. And I'm just going to tell you, when we get around the Thanksgiving tables with all of our families and friends, as we visit other people for Christmas, you're going to hear some things that you don't agree with. You're going to have to listen to some conversations that you're like, I don't want to be a part of those conversations. But listen, if we are one in Christ, it is very vital that we do everything we can to not be divided or distracted by our differences. And I'll tell you this, there's so many times in our life inside the church that not only do we want to make a mountain out of a molehill, we want to make a molehill out of a mountain. So something that is seemingly small, we blow up into something that's huge. And something that is actually huge, we make it super small. We do both. And we want to make sure that we as believers in Jesus are not distracted by our differences. Because if so, the same thing will be able to be said of us as was said of the church in Corinth. That when you come together, it's not for better but for worse. Second thing I want you to see is this. The church was stagnant because of self-indulgence. Verse 20. It says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Let me tell you what's happening here. The tradition of the church at this time 
as they took communion was this. The church would gather together. And first of all, they would have a full meal together. And then they would take communion together. They would observe the Lord's Supper. And so what would happen is those who were more wealthy in the congregation would bring the majority of the food. They would bring the majority of the food so that those who were poorer inside the church would benefit from that, right? They would get basically a free meal. And this was not a bad thing. This was a good thing because it was a ministry to those who did not have as much. But what was happening at the church in Corinth was those who were more wealthy at this point were bringing the food. It's just that they were gorging themselves on it all. They were eating it all for themselves. And so even though they brought more for everybody else, they were being gluttons, and basically they were eating all of their own food, and they were drinking all of their own wine, and so they were getting drunk, and they were probably getting bloated because of everything that they were eating and drinking, right? And so what was happening is they were making sure that those who were poor were almost humiliated because they were not getting what they should have been getting. There was a great amount of self-indulgence that was taking place at this traditional time of the year. And I think it's interesting because we live in a day where our priorities are made when we look in the mirror instead of when we look out a window. You see the difference? Our priorities right now for so many of us are self-indulgent that they're pleasing the person in the mirror rather than looking out at others out the window. And I believe we need a change. We need a shift because here's what happens. When the church begins to make their priorities, when they begin to make their schedules according to what they see in the mirror Ultimately, the church will not move forward, but the church will stagnate or even worse, will move backwards. So I I was thinking about this this past week, and maybe you can relate to this. Um, You know, I've heard heard this phrase uh, said a lot. You need to do what's best for you. You've probably heard that or some form of that. You need to do what's best for you. And I understand sometimes what's, what's going on here, what's, what people are saying, but i, I got to admit, on the surface, I cannot find any verse that aligns with that type of thinking. You must do what is best for you. The Bible does call us to promote healthy living. It calls us to promote activity. It promotes us to condemn overeating, exalt Sabbath rest, warns about how you treat the temple of God, shows how we need to protect our family, etc. But blanket statements like that allow room for many things that do not honor God, but rather indulge the flesh. You need to do what's best for you. We begin to say things like, this is my schedule. This is my hard-earned money. This is my agenda, and this is my right. When Christians inside the local church live with this outlook, there will be no forward movement. They will not push back the ominous darkness with the overwhelming light of Christ. 
Because the church is built on the idea of different people uniting together to form one body, and there will not be unity, but only individuality. And I'm afraid that so many times we are so focused on ourselves that we miss what matters most. And so certainly the church at this time became stagnant because of self-indulgence. I don't want us to be in that same category. So how can we make war against these two things that we've talked about? How can we get back to what matters most? I'm glad you asked because we're going to continue. Verse 23, I want you to see this. The church combats distraction and stagnation by stopping and remembering. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Let me be very clear. What matters most is Jesus, plain and simple. Paul was incredibly intentional in everything that he wrote. So he connects the former problems with a solution that was set up by Jesus being a consistent ordinance in the church through his remembrance of the Lord's Supper. And there is no doubt that Jesus knew that there would be forces that would rise in every generation and in every culture that would try to get us so busy, so distracted, and so disunified so self-indulgent that we would forget what matters most. He knew that. And so he knew that on some day, that his birthday would be so incredibly commercialized that even people who believers would be so busy doing all the things and making sure everything was set up right so that they literally would forget what matters most. They would forget that a relationship with Jesus is actually the most important thing in the world. And so he knew that that would take place. And the beautiful thing is he set something up for every generation to stop and remember. You know, it's interesting in the text... When you see him say, do this in remembrance of me, it's a quote, of course, from Jesus from the Last Supper. And it's interesting, their Jewish minds, when they thought about doing something in remembrance, it was not simply recalling something to their mind like a fleeting thought. Like, oh yeah, I remember that statistic. Or I remember that map. Or I remember that fact. It wasn't like that. You see, when the Jewish people would do something in remembrance, they wanted to make sure that everything that they did, every single sense that they have was involved in recognizing a reality that happened in the past. It's like this. You know, sometimes you can say, I remember exactly where I was when I found out this. 
right? You, you, you can all say that. Or I remember what his clothes smelled like. Or I remember what I was wearing when. You begin to engage all of your senses and you're like, okay, hold on. It's not just about remembering a fact that Jesus actually did die. His blood was shed for us. His body was broken for us. But it was entering into that time and saying, Jesus, I want to stop all of the things that I'm doing, all the busyness, all the assignments, all the checklists, all the things that are going on. I want to put time in my schedule to stop and remember. And I want to remember that time when you walked the streets and when you performed miracle after miracle. That time where you taught people what true love was actually all about. Where you taught people what sin really did to us, destroyed us. That you predicted and prophesied your own death and your own resurrection. The time that you actually invested into these 12 men. I want to remember that. I want to remember the life that you lived. I want to remember you being wrongfully arrested for a sham trial being put on, for you being condemned to death. What would that have felt like? What would that have felt like to be a part of the crowd, to hear you being described as guilty? What would it have been like as the people began to jeer around you as you began to carry your cross up on the hill, after you had just been violently flawed, what would that have been like? What would that have felt like? Jesus, what would it have been like when the nails entered your hands and your feet? What would it have been like as you uh, hung there on the cross, fighting for every single breath and doing so willingly because you knew that that was the only way that you could provide an opportunity for sinful man to have an, a relationship with you. What would that have been like? Engage your senses. What would have been the sights? What would have been the sounds? How would he have felt being up on that cross, made fun of, people yelling at him. What would the scene have been like all around him? How would he have felt as he was beginning to take his last breath? That is what they were stopping and remembering. And when it talks about his body, you have to understand this. To the Jewish audience, the body was not simply a reference to the physical being, but it referred to everything that Jesus was. His whole being, his teaching, his miracles, his relationships, his death, his resurrection. It was everything. So take this. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Not just this was my physical specimen. It was about everything that Jesus was. His actual being. They were remembering that. His blood was not simply to create some type of gory horror scene. It was a reminder that throughout the Old Testament, blood had been used to cover sin in the sacrificial system. 
But the sacrifices then were unending until Jesus came and he gave a once-for-all sacrifice that covered every sin and covered every person. This sacrifice provided a way for sinful man to have a relationship with a holy, perfect God. That is what they were stopping and remembering. They were stopping and they were remembering what mattered most. Not the differences inside of their church. Not the factions that warred against one another. They didn't want to focus on the self-indulgence and what do I want? How can you please me? This is my schedule. This is my money. This is my, you know, all these things. They wanted to say, hey, Paul was telling them, guys, listen, the way to combat that and the way to get back to what matters most is to stop and to remember Jesus. Very simply. And so this morning, as we're about to enter a hamster wheel of a season ahead of us, where we are running in so many different directions and doing so many different things, I actually want us in the room to begin this season by doing exactly what Paul prescribes in this passage and remembering Jesus, through the same act that he talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the same thing that's spoken about in Mark and in Luke, this idea of communion. 